Getting you through your Tuesday morning. It's Abilas Daily from the Spectrum Healthcare Partner Studios across the NBR Radio Network. Joining us now on the line, the legendary Steve Buckley from the Boston Herald. Good morning, Steve. How are you? That's the legendary Steve Buckley from the Portland Press Herald <laughs> by way of the Journal <laughs> Tribune of Bitterford. So we have my bona established here. This is true. That way everybody knows that you started here, right? The the yeah. Journal Tribune to the Herald to the Herald. Yes, that's correct. With, with about nine stops in between, but yeah, pretty much got it, yeah. That's uh, that's awesome. Uh, first off, I did want to touch base on your uh, your recent uh, baseball event. Uh, that looked like an absolutely great time. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about that. That was that looked like a phenomenal uh, a phenomenal turnout and a phenomenal uh, a phenomenal event. Yeah, well, we've been doing it for twenty. This is the twenty fifth edition, if you can believe that. We've even joked about we're going to go with Roman numerals, you know, like old time baseball game XL, you know, and all that. But um, it, it was. Uh, uh, a really fun event. You know, we have all the players decked out in the old-style uniforms throughout baseball history, and we played this game as a fundraiser for the American Heart Association in memory of Steve Harris, who's a uh, former health sports writer who died. His son had played in our game 10 years ago, so we invited both his sons back. We got Tim Wakefield to pitch an inning, and then this is real baseball. This isn't like lobbing it in there and stuff, and, and um, he faced Ray Bork, who's someone I covered for years in the Bruins, and uh, everyone won because Ray Bork got a hit off Tim Wakefield, but Tim Wakefield pitched a shutout inning, so it was a good, everyone went home happy in that respect. That's good. That's that's solid news. It's too bad Aaron Boone's managing the Yankees right now. You could have had him come in. Like, <laughs> that would have been good. I, I, I toyed with making that joke, but the quorum prevented me from bringing that up. I'm telling, I'm telling you right now, Steve, He, if he continues at his current pace, he might be available for you in a couple of years. That's all I'm it, saying it, to it you. Could, it could very well happen. I'll I, I tell you what we did have. Is if you go back to, nine, not, we didn't have this year, but several years ago. Uh, you know who Jeffrey Mayer is? Yes, the guy who caught the ball in 96 uh, in block yes. and kept it from Tony Tarasco. Yeah. Yes. Very, wow, you even got the Tarasco part. That's impressive. And uh, so he went on to play college baseball Wesleyan and he graduated the year he, his senior year I called up John Casey the coach at Tufts you know you know Nescat you know Bates and Bowden and I asked him if, if he could call the Wesleyan coach and see if the kid was interested in playing so Jeffrey came up and played the whole game uh, at third base uh, for us back about 10 years ago and ended up living in Boston and, and attended he's married now with kids but he was uh, an attendee at our game for several years. He's a great guy. That's awesome. That's really good. Yeah. I remember yeah, we do some we do some goofy stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> if, if we find a good story, um, we will invite somebody in to make them part of the game. That's what makes it so much fun. We can do whatever we want. That's uh, well, and that's and that's exactly how that works. So that's that's really cool. That's a uh, that's yeah. a cool event. I got to go down and catch that next summer. I think I, I think you you finally convinced me, Steve. I'm going to come down for that. I'm going to check that well, out. Well, we we had two guys from Maine this year. Uh, Mitchell Powers went to Chevrolet. Uh He pitched a perfect game at Southern New Hampshire University this year, and his entire family emailed me to let me know because they knew that way back in 1981. Literally two weeks after I began my uh, tenure at the Portland Press Herald, I was covering York County sports, and I covered the New England Babe Ruth Finals at Goodall Park in Sanford. And this kid's father, Mark Powers, who later pitched up at Orono with John Lincoln, he pitched a perfect game in the finals uh, over Cranston, Rhode Island. And uh, so 
we had the bookend perfect games, and I invited Mitchell to pitch an inning this year. He brought his family down, so I met Mark Powers for the first time in 37 years, so that was kind of fun. That is, that's awesome. That's, that's yeah. really cool. Now, the reason I, I reached out today, one of the biggest reasons I reached out today, was because of the sad news that we received uh, over the weekend that uh, former Maine Guides manager Doc Edwards passed away. And I know you've got quite a few stories of Mr. Edwards uh, back in the day. So I wanted to bring you on. I mean, the I think the main guides kind of get brushed over from time to time. Everybody brings them out and they do it like a, they do the feel good story every now and then about, oh, this is what happened and this is what it was. But, you know, for AAA baseball to be in Old Orchard Beach, Maine, it still to me blows me away. And uh, some of the players that came through, there were quite a few characters, but I think Doc Edwards was uh, it was quite a quite a helmsman when he was at the when he was at the helm of the guides. Oh yeah! Now I first met Doc the year before when he was still managing the Charleston Charlies, who would become the main guide the next year because Jordan Colbert had bought the team already and they played a lame duck season in Charleston. So I went down to Pawtucket when the Charlies were in town to do the obligatory Doc Edwards feature, and we hit it off nicely. What I did not know is that within a year when the guys were hatched, uh, what a significant influence he would have on my life and also on Gary Thorne's life because uh, Gary was doing the play-by-play and we would travel with the team. We made every trip that year and we would ride the buses and Doc sat in the front row as managers and coaches do but to the left he gave us our own seats. So so. Doc had the two seats to himself, he being the manager, and then to the left was Gary Thorne and me. And and we would talk, you know, driving from Toledo over to Columbus and so forth. And then after games, Doc was a very convivial guy. He would take us out, you know, every little burger place and late night diner on the IL circuit. And he would constantly draw in fact when he when, when Gary Thorne left to go do the Mets after that first year he gave Doc Edwards a box of um, napkins because nothing, Doc loved grabbing a napkin and a pen and writing out lineups. That was his thing. Like, I'd do this, and I'd move this guy up to the third hole. And he had that soothing West Virginia accent. And, and, and you could get Gary Thorne on your show tomorrow, and he would tell you the exact same thing. Both of us learned so much about baseball from Doc that one year that nothing even comes close. It's been uh, a huge influence on my career, even now all these years later. It's amazing to me how uh, how much great baseball talent there was in the state of Maine uh, through Triple. I mean, there's still great baseball talent in here now. I mean, you get the Sea Dogs, and you know people come up through Double A all the time. And minor league baseball is <clears> a little <throat> different, but that was a different time for Triple A. So you never knew who would be rolling through the doors over there. You know? Oh, well, I mean, I'll throw some names at you. Uh, Kirby Puckett played his final minor league game in Olochet Beach. In fact, I interviewed him. He, he had just been, it was very early in the 84 season. Um, he, you know, if, if you look at 14 or 15 games in AAA, maybe a bit more, then he got called up by the Twins. But it was on a Sunday afternoon um, at the ballpark. He played his final AAA game and got called up. Uh, yeah, we saw... Uh, uh, John Gibbons, who's now the manager of the Toronto Blue Jays, I saw him when he played for. Um, can you guys still hear me? I can. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I just I thought it, I fade, it fades a little bit, but I still got you. You're okay. Yeah. I no. I all of a sudden there was this big long deep. Uh, John Gibbons, who's now the manager of the Toronto Blue Jays, I covered him when he was at Tidewater. Um, 
Doug Jones, uh, who had a long, long career in the big leagues, he played for the main guys. Uh, I, I can just go on. Billy Bean, who now runs the Oakland A's, I saw him in Tidewater. Um, yeah, there were just so many guys that came through. And um, and, and then if you want to go beyond Maine, uh, I, I covered the Black Bears for two years. Obviously, Billy Swift from South Portland mm-hmm. um, had that long career in the big league. Kevin Buckley from Braintree, you know, no relation. Uh, he's a Black Bear, played a little bit in the big league. Um, Mike Bordick came right after me. I, I, I saw him play in Orono, but I was covering the guides by then. And he was an undrafted uh, free agent, not even drafted by anybody, and ended up at the Oakland A's and played 13 years in the big league. So, yeah, definitely a lot of, a lot of baseball coming through Maine. No, tons of it. You know, I, I think about those times, too, because I remember when uh, Oriel Cam Boyd had to come up here for a rehab assignment. Right. And uh, Doc Gooden had a rehab assignment down yep. here. I mean, that was the stuff when you were a kid. You're like, Doc Gooden's going to pitch in Old Orchard Beach? Like, you didn't. I heard about that. Now, I missed that because I, I went to Seattle at the 86 season and, and moved up here to cover the Mariners. And, and that was the end of my main era. Um, I think Doc Gooden was the next year when they were the main Phillies. Um, yeah. Uh, the Indians had moved to Buffalo, and the team was going to be moved, the franchise itself was going to be moved to scranton Wilkesbury, where they became the Red Barons. Uh, so in 87, there were Phillies AAA franchise, and that's when Doc Gooden pitched up there. And I heard some horrible stories because the uh, a ton of media went up there to interview Doc Gooden, and the Mets did not make him available, which happens from yeah. time to time. And... Uh, and, and, and I remember there were, there were a lot of very frustrated sports writers. And Lee Montel, who was writing a very good columnist with the Boston Globe, uh, wrote a column uh, referring to Jay Horwitz, the Mets PR director, with his plastic shield um, around uh, Dwight Gooden. Well, a couple years later, I was covering the Yankees, and they had the baseball writers' dinner, and they gave Jay, it was, they were honoring Jay Horwitz. And in honor of Lee Montville, they presented a plastic shield. They went out and got a big piece of plastic <laughs> and gave it to Jay Horowitz because of what happened up in Old Orchard Beach that day. That's awesome. That's that's so great. Um, you know, another another former Maine guy that a lot of people forget about was John Farrell. John Farrell pitched a pitched a game or two up here. I had an interview with him a few years ago, um, and he talked about it and, and talked about how great the ballpark was and everything. And with that transition a, a little bit here, and are able to transition a little bit here to talk about current day stuff as the Red Sox have transitioned from John Farrell to Alex Cora to tremendous uh, tremendous results and. You know, you look at the two teams right now, you look at the Yankees and the Red Sox, it looks like the Red Sox definitely got their managerial stuff right. The atmosphere down at Boston last night was fantastic. It translated well over TV. Uh, wasn't the result you wanted, but I mean, that is, that's, we got a heck of a preview of October baseball last night from the looks of things. Yeah, definitely. And uh, two really good ball clubs. Obviously, Rick Porcello, when he gives up a home run, it stays hit. I mean, he, he, boy, he gives up home runs, and that's because his stuff. He throws those sinkers and everything, and if the ball sits up in the zone, guys are going to clobber it. So he, 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 he has to be perfect in order to win. wasn't perfect last night and gave up a couple of bombs, but um, your larger point is correct. I mean, the both teams are really good. The Red Sox, perhaps historically so at this juncture, and um, atmosphere was terrific. It's uh, the, the, the fans... Uh, baseball is, is a building process in terms of fans' love because it, it's not like 10, 15, 20 years ago where it was all Red Sox all the time as soon as they opened the season. Now they have to compete with the Patriots and the Bruins and Celtics and the great guns in the playoffs lately and so forth. So 
but we're at that junction now, even with the Patriots in training camp, where all eyes are on the Red Sox. And and I'm not saying this as as a fan because I'm not. I'm, I'm supposed to be the grumpy sports columnist, but I do recognize that when the Red Sox are in the postseason, when they are winning in October, it's a uh, distinct feeling uh, throughout New England. And uh, I hope we see some of that just because a, a big part of my job is chronicling history. So you root for the history and hope that you have great stuff to write about. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the, and that's the kind of the cool part of it. You know, there's so much with this. There's, there's a lot of different paths this, this could take. You know what I mean? It could go like the 74, 78 path. This could go the 2013 path. We've now seen multiple versions of the Red Sox. We've seen them win. We've seen them lose. Like this is, there's a lot of different ways for this to go. And I know one of the things that's on everybody's mind is Chris Sale. I just wanted to ask that question. And go ahead, Ryan. I, that, that no, was, I just uh, Steve, I wonder what your uh, your thoughts are on Chris Sale. Is this a legit injury? Is this more precautionary, or what do you think? Well, the easy answer is I don't know because I'm not in the meeting rooms when they hold up the X-rays and and and, and do the diagnosis. So I don't have all the information. What I do know is that if you have a string bean left-hander who throws up to 100 miles an hour and he's got discomfort anywhere in his body, that's something to be worried about. And they put him on the DL a couple, three weeks ago, right after the All-Star game, and I was on TV station down here in Boston, and I expressed concern. Then I expressed concern on the radio. Then I expressed concern in a column, and people were avalanching me with emails and Twitter and whatnot. Oh, you're just being negative. And, well, he pitches one game, and now he's back on the disabled list. So can I can I still be concerned? Is that all right, or am I just being negative? And uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying the, the Red Sox are lying, uh, because I'm old enough to understand that the word lying has multiple layers and meanings and definitions. And uh, I prefer to call it a Eddie Emblem in the old days, to call it a sports fib. And, uh, you know, no team is going to, like, just lay out all the pie charts and diagrams and x-rays and stuff. They're just going to say, hey, he, he's mild discomfort, and here we go. So I'll take them at their word, but I, I choose to be very concerned because uh, you, you can draw up all kinds of scenarios where they still win the World Series without him. I mean, look what the Eagles did in the Super Bowl last year with their backup quarterback. So never say never, but you, you pretty much have a much better chance of winning the World Series with this guy at your ace in October. Is it easier to cover David Price when he's struggling or when he's pitching well? Is it easier to what not? Is, is it easier to cover him when he's struggling or when he's oh, pitching well? Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. We get that a lot because people assume that we want him to struggle and be screaming at people so we have more to write about. Um, I, I, I can comfortably say after all the years I've been doing this, we can find stuff to write about. We don't, yeah. we don't, we don't root for... Uh, drama. It's it's fun. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, David Price has said and done some things during his time in Boston where, and I, again, I won't lie, you sit down at the computer and say, oh boy, this is going to be awesome, and you, and you start writing it. And um, But it gets tired after a while, and, and then the act gets repetitive. It's like, oh, I already wrote this story. He has said some things this year that they would call me, hey, you want to do a column on this? They go, no, he said the same thing in spring training. It's, it's old. So um, I, I do know that when he's on, and I, and I love the game of baseball, when he pitched in the playoffs last October, again, just in relief, but I'm telling you, 
if you go back and look at the replays, he would throw pitches that were one-sixteenth of an inch on the black. His control can be that good, which is why he runs up great strikeout totals. So, no, I, w- I would prefer that he pitch and pitch well and pitch effectively and give us great baseball to write about. Talking with Steve Buckley from the Boston Herald. Um, this bullpen is currently constituted confident enough with that going into going into the playoffs, especially knowing that you can probably pluck and choose maybe from a little bit of the starting staff if need be? Well, <clears throat> I'm going to say yes because of the way you posed the question. You, you said confident enough. <laughs> you, you yourself hedged your bets a little bit when you asked the question. So, yes, I'm going to say yes, I'm confident enough. Uh, and again, I'm playing by your rules. Yeah. Um, if, if you said do you have any concerns about the bullpen? I would say, yeah, I do. You know, it's not its not what the Royals had a few years ago where they had five guys throwing 98. Um, so it, it's, it's not one of those great, great bullpens that you're going to write poetry about. But at the same time, am I confident enough? Yes, I am. All right. That's, I feel like that would be the same answer Dave Dombrowski would give if given some sort of truth serum, like it's confident enough. So, you know what I mean? By the way, by the way, I don't know which one of you guys mentioned it, but you mentioned the, the 74 Red Sox. That is a gag team that never gets enough press around New England. Everyone talks about 1948 and Denny and 49 where they lost two straight games, and um, it, obviously 2011. There are all these years where they, they quote-unquote blew it. 70, and obviously 78. 1974, they had like a six, seven-game lead in late August. And not only did they not win the division, but they finished in third place, seven and a half games out of first. They, they lost 14 games in the standings in about 32 games. That was an epic fall that nobody talks about. That was, thank you for bringing that up. Because I, see, it's tough for me to bring these things up because I'm just, you know, most most folks up around here, I'm a, I'm a big Yankees fan, so people just think I'm being a Red Sox hater, but I'm not. I just like to deal in facts because that's kind of what my job is. And I'll occasionally needle once in a while because that's just how it works. But that 74 team to me was the one that's like all that talent because then they came right back around in 75 and made it to the World yeah. Series. And it's like, Man, how much different would baseball history have been if they had held on in '74? Like that's a and no one, no one talks about that. No, I mean everybody yeah. gets mad about '78, but nobody, nobody says a lick about '74. Yeah, well, I was going into my freshman year in college. I went to UMass Boston my freshman year. Then I transferred out to UMass Amherst, and uh, so I was living at home. And I was looking forward. My uncle was an usher at Fenway Park, uh, uh, which is one of the reasons I'm a nutso baseball fan, but. But I, I was guaranteed entrance to the playoffs and World Series if they made it, and um, which I did. I got I got a year later when they were at uh, when they played Oakland in the ALCS, and then the Reds in the World Series. I came back for those games except for Game Six and Seven. I got tickets to Games One and Two and Seventy Five, plus the home games against Oakland uh, in the ALCS. Uh, but as a freshman in college, living in Cambridge, like a four mile, three miles from Fenway Park. Um, I was looking forward to going to those playoff games, and I was heartbroken. The same thing in 72. I was uh, when they lost by a half game the strike year, and uh, they finished one half game behind the Detroit Tigers. I already had my playoff ticket for the LCS. And, um, yeah, that 74 team really pissed me off, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I could let – I feel like this this was cathartic for you this morning. It was good. It was nice. I'm glad I well, could. I mean, think about it. In 67, I was too young. I was 11 years old, and uh, – when they won the pennant, and, and there were tickets, and 
when the Red Sox won that final game against the Twins, my brother, there's a picture I have in my den, a big, huge picture. My brother is on, my late brother Paul is right on the field standing next to Jim Lonborn. I should be here with him, but my dad wouldn't let me go because, oh, if they win, it's going to be a bad house. I, I was 11 years old. So ever since then, I've been waiting for my moment uh, to be there when they won the big game. And, and of course, in 72, they failed by a half game. In 74, they have the epic choke. And then in 75, I finally got to go there. But, I, but, but in the fall of 74, I didn't know that 75 was going to happen. I was really upset about it. It's just, you know, I, it's so, and now I think about it too, like the late eighties, like when they, when they made it against the A's in 88 and 90, like nobody expected them to win a game. And that's exactly what happened. They lost in four each time and everybody was just kind of happy to be there, but nobody expected yeah. the Red Sox to do anything. So it was, it was weird. There was that gap from the seventies where you expected them to do something. They didn't then the kind of, ah, well, we'll see what happens. 86 happens, which was heartbreaking. Then 88 and 90, it was like, ah, just happy they made it. And then in the 90s, you know, Pedro shows up, 99, he actually, you know, wins a series and they move on. Like, to me, that's how it built all the way up to 2004. The, the history and evolution well, yeah. of the Red Sox in the last 30 years, 40 years has been amazing. Yeah. To, witness. to add to your point, 88-90, it wasn't so much as happy to be there. You are correct. I agree with that. Coupled with the fact, I'll amplify it by pointing out that I think deep down, most folks around here knew they weren't going to beat Oakland. Those were two powerhouse teams. Mm-hmm. They had Stewart and Eckersley and Carney Lansford and Ken Seiko, McGuire and Walt Weiss. I mean, you just go on and on. Those, those, were, those were great teams they had in 88 and 90. And uh, 95, again, was a disappointment because they had that great run. Wakefield had that fine season. And, and then they just went flat against the uh, Cleveland Indians in the first division series. So, yeah, but but eighty eight ninety, it was just. I agree with your larger point. People were just happy to see the good baseball. Yeah, no, well, that's really what it was. And then of course, Tom Brunanski lives in lives in. Uh, I I don't think he's famous enough for that catch against Toronto in nineteen ninety. But you know. I actually watched that game in the clubhouse monitor in Baltimore because we were down there for some reason. I, I was working for the National. I think I might have been with the Yankees or something, but uh, I was in. The game had ended, and I watched that on the clubhouse monitor in Baltimore. And uh, yeah, that was uh, that. Was, you're right, Pransky, uh I think if if the Red Sox had done anything in that postseason, Pransky would be. It's almost like Dave Roberts. If if, if Dave Roberts steals the base, and then they end up uh, losing that ALCS against the Yankees in Game Seven, then then it becomes sort of a pleasant memory. But it wouldn't be the be all end all that it is right now. Yeah, now now Dave Roberts doesn't have to buy anything once he gets into New England. Like I believe it's like, amazing. I've, I've I've seen him when he's been back at Fenway a few times, and uh, it, it it transcends the ages. Even even see that was fourteen years ago. So even even like twenty twenty one year old fans, I've seen them. They were like little children. Uh, but but Dave Roberts resonates with everybody. It's a, it, it's I was there. It was. It was it, it, and I'm not going to say my eyes opened and said, oh, they're going to win the ALCS now. But it, it did spark a lot of um, renewed optimism. Steve Buckley from the Boston Herald joined us today. We talked about the death of Doc Edwards, former manager of the Maine Guides. I did want to touch on one more thing before I let you out of here. How long were you with the National for? That was I read a story, a long-form story about that a couple of years ago. I just found that whole thing fascinating. Yeah, um, I was there from start to finish. I... I I was actually hired a month before they published, so I was on the payroll in December of 1989, <clears throat> and in fact, uh, just to brag a little bit, I was actually drawing two paychecks because 
I had comp time coming from the Hartford Current where I was working at the time covering the Red Sox. I, when you cover baseball the whole season, you have all this comp time built up. So they owed me six weeks' pay, and the contractually they just keep paying you until the comp time is done. And I was on the payroll of the National Sports Daily a month before they published and not working because there's no paper yet. And so I was drawing two paychecks a week to sit around Cambridge and not do a whole lot. So that was kind of a nice month for me in my life. And, um, and, then, and then we started up in January of 90. And I was with them right through June 13th of 91, I believe it was. So it was 16 months of really is the most fun I ever had in this business in terms of working for a startup and hanging out with Frank DeFord and all these famous people and stuff. And uh, it, it was um, a, a year or two too soon. I think if they had launched uh, and, and done a few things differently, they'd have jumped onto the Internet age. And uh, I think what ESPN.com became is what the National would have become if they had just hung on a little bit longer. I totally agree with you after reading that i'm like you know when i look at stuff that's going on right now with like the athletic and stuff like that i'm like you know that's all based off of what happened with the national so it's just they're not sending out a daily paper every day they're just sending it out to the internet i mean it was yeah well frank before lived in in westport connecticut and he and he read the hartford current and he took a shining to me and vince doria had been hired by the boston globe and i had been talking with vince about working for him in boston but he ends up going to the National and raises my name with Frank, and Frank says, oh, I know him. And so they hire me, and I walk into the first big staff meeting, and there's Mike Lupiker and Norman Shad and Scott Osler. I mean, these are big, big names in sports journalism. And I was 33 years old working for the Hartford Current, which is a fine newspaper, but I, I wasn't in the, in the company of these guys, but there I was in the same room with them. And that was a... And Frank DeFord with his big swashbuckling mustache and his loud jackets and his way of speaking like this. You ever watch uh, Mr. Peterman on Seinfeld? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was that was Frank in a nice way. I mean, Frank had that kind of swagger that the guy, in, uh, Jay Peterman, has. And, um, and and walking down the hall with him, talking with him, that was, that's, I got goosebumps just thinking about that. That was Those were fun times. His name is Steve Buckley. You can follow him on Twitter. Look for Buck in Boston. Find him at the Boston Herald. Steve Buckley, thank you very much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Anytime, guys. All right. Thank you. See you, Steve. That is Steve Buckley from the Boston Herald. We'll take a break. Travis Barrett from CentralMaine.com will join us in just a little bit. Be Daily, Spectrum Healthcare Partner Studios.